Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where we will have the opportunity to talk with Catherine Fleischer, who is a student at the University of Pittsburgh and the founding executive director of Not My Generation, which is a nonprofit dedicated to localized, intersectional gun violence prevention organizing among young adults. Catherine is a former Nifty North American president and current Religious Action Center Commission on Social Action member. She also previously served on the Executive Planning Committee of the Women of Reform Judaism's inaugural Social Justice Conference. Catherine, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to give you the opportunity to kick off the conversation by telling us about Not My Generation. Not My Generation is an organization that was formed after the Tree of Life shooting uh, in October of 2018. Uh, Being a student at Pitt, the shooting was extremely close to home, both emotionally and literally. And in the wake of the shooting, we saw how the Pittsburgh community responded to the tragedy by coming together across lines of difference. Uh, In particular, I was really inspired by the way that the Muslim community uh, showed up for the Jewish community in the wake of the tragedy. Uh, Essentially overnight, the community raised a quarter of a million dollars to pay for funeral costs and medical costs of the victims of the shooting. Uh, And I saw the real power in coalitional work, Uh, but I also saw how after the Shiva period ended and after all the news crews started going home, how that coalition ideology kind of started fading. Uh, And I think that it's the most important thing we can do to prevent gun violence and to prevent hate crimes and to prevent white supremacy from making its way into our spaces is to be in coalition with others across lines of difference, particularly in the gun violence prevention space. And so I formed Not My Generation with the intent of ensuring that there are young, diverse voices in every space where gun violence prevention organizing is taking place. We also know that uh, people who are on the ground can speak to the needs and desires of their communities uh, best. And so we're focused on localized work uh, and empowering local, young, diverse leaders to do that work in their communities. Give us just an example of some of the work that you do on the ground. Recently, about a month ago, we hosted our first national summit for Young Adults Against Gun Violence. So we brought about 125 young adult organizers to Washington, D.C. from about 30 different states uh, to do this work and to be in coalition one another with one another to do uh, learning about different types of gun violence um, and the different opportunities we have to uh, address it. Um, and then we also, most importantly, worked on year-long strategy plans. So the intent is that those who came to the summit formed a strategy plan with others from their area, which they then took home and are working to implement. And so right now we're working on building local coalitions in a bunch of different cities. Um, We have a decent showing um, in Denver and Atlanta in Oakland and California um, in Chicago, where we are right now. 
um, just a lot of different cities across the country where gun violence looks a lot of different ways on where young people are at the forefront and we're working with them as they try to bring in the actors who are involved with gun violence prevention in their community and ensure that they're showing up and representing the needs of, of young people, of people of color, of LGBTQ folks. So this is organizing, lobbying, uh, showing up at protests? Yeah, all, all, all of those above. pieces. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that we've focused on is understanding that change can happen in a lot of different ways. So it doesn't just have to be legislative. It doesn't just have to be around protests, but it can also be around uh, corporate levers, right? And working with businesses, whether it be around uh, gun manufacturer liability, gun distributor liability, whether it be about uh, using market forces and our power as, cons of, as consumers um, to push those who invest in uh, gun companies to uh, pressure them to create smarter gun technology, whatever it might be. Um, there's also community-based approaches that we're really a fan of, um, in particular violence intervention programs, which basically attempt to interrupt the cycle of violence, uh, particularly in communities that experience everyday violence. Um, so also some of our work is around those non-legislative, um, a little bit more non-traditional approaches. As you look at the landscape of the communities that are most invested in dealing with gun violence, what would you say are the strongest, most promising opportunities for achieving your agenda or at least advancing it? I think that's a great question. I think that there are quite a few different spaces and depending on who you ask, people will probably give you very different answers. Uh, personally, I've been seeing a lot of movement on extreme risk protection orders, uh, ERPOs, or otherwise known as red flag laws, which, which essentially empower uh, those who live with an individual or a member of, the, of law enforcement to petition a court to take uh, firearms away from somebody temporarily who is potentially harmful to themselves or to others. Um, and that's really compelling, um, not only because it could prevent uh, potential hate crimes. If we see someone who's active in online spaces, like the Tree of Life shooter was, he was a known anti-Semite, and he was still able to purchase weapons, keep those weapons, and carry out his plan. So if we're able to step in when we know someone is potentially targeting other groups of people, um, we can save lives that way. Um, also, we know that one in six instances of gun violence um, are suicide. And so extremist protection orders allow for taking guns away from people who may be looking to harm themselves. Um, and so having extremist protection orders might really mitigate the amount of uh, suicide by firearm that we see in the U.S. today. So that is uh, a pretty powerful tool. I can see if it gets implemented. These are municipal ordinances or state legislation? Depends on, on where it is. Um, there's some at the national level, some at the state and some at the local level. We do see that Local level laws regarding gun violence often are not implemented. Most states have what's called preemption laws, where essentially the state can overrule. The sovereignty of the state trumps yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the ordinance of the state. Yes. So it does beg the question, if we talk about opportunities and, and um, advancement of your agenda, what are some of the persistent or newest and most challenging um, problems that you face or hindrances? For me, I think that the biggest issue that we're facing is apathy. I think that people are really discouraged by the amount of violence and the scope of the problem they see around them. I think a lot of people feel numb because there have been more mass shootings than days in the year this year and years 
previously. Mass being defined as? Four, four or more people being shot, um, either injured or killed. Um, and so we know that gun violence is such an issue that I think some people, in order to cope or in order to go about their daily lives, just kind of either accept it or block it out or whatever it might be. Um, in my in my own personal experience, of course, we're going up against folks who um, are on the other side and who are really advocating for widespread gun ownership and open carry and pieces like that. Um, that's challenging, but I would say way more often than we encounter those folks, we encounter people who either don't care or don't see the scope of the problem um, or don't have the emotional capacity to kind of take it on and, and feel responsibility for us. It's just such a pervasive and heartbreaking issue. Are you avoiding referring to the NRA? Um, not really avoiding it. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is the fact that the NRA is funded by gun manufacturers and their CEOs and folks deeply related to them. So the NRA has really become a mouthpiece for the gun manufacturers, much less how it used to be, which was gun owners. Owners. So you, you're not avoiding it. You're deciding that it's not actually the problem insofar as it's a consequence of a deeper problem and you want to tackle that problem. Correct. And the fact that gun manufacturers have so much power and money that they can do essentially whatever they want via the NRA in terms of policy and swaying lawmakers and swaying other people in power. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. For those of us not involved in the issue of gun violence on a daily basis, uh, the news has been um, seemingly indicating that Americans, by and large, in some apparently significant majorities, favor gun restrictions when they're offered an example of a specific possible type of restriction, but uh, uh, as a totality, they resist any kind of uh, gun control writ large. Is, is, is that accurate? And does it affect your work? I think that, that perception is accurate. I don't know that the reality of it is accurate. Uh, but either way, it of course affects our work. Any type of community organizing is, is based on, you know, changing hearts and changing minds. And so if people feel a certain way, regardless of the reason, uh, it's something that we're concerned about and is impactful to our work. What you're referencing, I think, in particular around universal background checks, um, we've heard the numbers anywhere between 85 and 92 percent of the American public supports universal background checks, which includes gun owners, includes folks who vote 
um, to the right or anywhere else. Um, clearly, that's a vast majority of Americans. I don't know if there's... If the, if the polls are accurate, yeah. Right. I don't know if, if there's anything else that Americans agree upon to that extent. Uh, and so there's something else at play there, right? There's, there's money in politics that certainly is impacting our work and is impacting our perception of the reality that clearly differs from how people actually feel. Um, we also see that some people are just resistant to language, um, hence why we tend to use the language gun violence prevention instead of gun control. Gun control often sets people off, makes them feel like they sure. have to be on the offensive. It's classic verbiage that right. people will react to, yeah. Yeah, so we see that there are definitely ways to kind of deconstruct the whole uh, for guns, against guns, and really complicate that notion, because I think the more we complicate it, the more we find specific pieces that we can reach common ground on. Or alternatively, you are complicating it, and you don't want it to be simple because it's in the complications that you can pick out pieces where you can make progress. Exactly. And also framing the issue in terms of other issues that are less divisive. So, for instance, child welfare is a pretty non-divisive issue. Almost everyone agrees right. children should be safe and taken care of. But when we look at that in the space of gun violence prevention, we might look to child access prevention laws, which creates... Uh, depending on the law, typically something regarding um, liability for gun owners. So parents who leave their guns either unlocked or loaded or both, um, and their child finds them and either just accesses them or uses them or whatnot, that that parent is liable for that. Um, laws right. like that theoretically will keep children safe from using their parents' guns to right. commit crimes or hurt Somehow themselves lower or their risk, yeah. yeah. It seems to me that issues around gun ownership um, are litigated in the public sphere regarding policy. I just want to pause to acknowledge that I recognize that it's not just about policy for you, and I, I get that, but I just want to pick up on the policy element of it, that I, I find it to be a triggering, politicizing approach to talk about policy when someone invokes um, foreign country policies as either models to avoid or models to emulate. Um, I, I think that both sides have an interesting relationship to drawing inspiration from other countries uh, that can be actually pretty emotional just in and of itself, regardless of the fact that it's about an emotional issue in the first place. Have you found that? Do you engage with argument that is based on other countries' legislation or not? Do you avoid it? Is it really not so relevant anyway? It's definitely relevant. I don't know to what point it can be relied upon as a point to debate because at some point we're just debating other countries' policies and I don't know where that's getting us because at the end of the day, our culture is different, our community is different, on and on and on. Um, but certainly we can look to aggregate data, I think, on the global stage to help us see how we measure up the fact that the United States has more gun violence than the next 26 developed countries combined should be an indicator that we're doing something drastically wrong, or the fact that in other countries there are the other factors at play that some folks here think contribute to our gun crisis, like violent video games, um, difficult or abusive childhoods, um, bullying, pieces like that exist everywhere around the world, uh, essentially, but they don't have the gun crisis that we have. And so I think that we can look to that type of aggregate data to see and point out specifically uh, what things are and aren't working in comparison to the rest of the world. 
And I'd like to close with a forward-looking question uh, just about your mindset. How are you feeling uh, with respect to our middle-term future, let's say five years out, six, seven years max, in terms of your optimism or your pessimism, in terms of where you think the, um, the general movement is? I'm optimistic. I think that we have to be optimistic. There is so much to fear and be scared and grieving over that it's really easy to get stuck in that. But that's not going to help anybody. That's not going to save lives. That's not going to honor the legacy of the people who've already been lost. And I see that the movement, the gun violence prevention movement, is continually growing, continually expanding. I think we're reaching a point where there's really a widespread understanding of the importance of addressing gun violence from an intersectional perspective, um, really an emphasis on ensuring that survivors uh, and victims are at the forefront of the movement and leading it, that we're doing trauma-informed work. Um, I think that overall the movement is maturing and growing and expanding, and I see more and more young and diverse leaders come into the space, which is deeply inspirational to me, uh, particularly when I have the opportunity to learn and work, learn from and work with them. I think that we're getting to a point where there's, there's going to be a tipping point, and America is going to have to come to terms with the fact that we don't know if we value children more than we value guns, and someone's going to have to choose. And I have enough optimism to think that if it, when we really come down to that and we're really able to phrase the question in that way without the influence of as much money in politics as there is now or as much divisiveness and politicization, that people are going to say that kids and lives matter more than guns and the right to bear arms. Well, thank you for your work and thank you for taking the time to share it with us. Uh, it's inspirational in and of itself. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial Series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.